Uh, but we're going to do a couple of other things first. Uh, we're going to have Nick come up and talk a little bit about what we're going to do starting not next Wednesday, but the Wednesday after, Wednesday the 15th. Um, so you, you have a little bit more information about it. Um, Nick's one of our elders, and uh, this series, this eight-week series that we're going to do um, after we finish First, First Corinthians 12 next week, um, we'll come back to First Corinthians after that. But uh, this eight-week series was his idea that he and Tyler and I, I'm telling the whole story. So you and I and Tyler are going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Nick Oviedo, uh, good to see everyone. We are doing a summer series called Kingdoms. um, And this is the book that I would recommend to use. We have some in the back. Uh, It's it's just the Bible. Uh, It's a different translation. It's the uh, New Living Translation. And if you uh, take a look at it, it it looks uh, just like a more like a normal book, so there's no verses. The verses have been stripped from it. And you have um, everything from, I believe, Judges to Samuel Kings. We're just going to do weeks three through eight. In the back, it shows, like, uh, here's the week three reading plan, week eight reading plan. I also, if you don't use the book, which is fine, uh, just gave us a roadmap of if you don't do this week three reading plan, we're just going to do the first 20 uh, 20 chapters of First Samuel leading into this. So some of the things that I would say, like my plug on why we would want to do this. One is there's actually the sermon series for the next, uh, not couple Sundays, for several Sundays starting in July will be on for, 20, for 22 weeks. 22 weeks on Saul, David, and Solomon. Right, which is all in uh, first, uh, which is all in Samuel and Kings, uh, which you'll learn is actually just one big uh, story. Um, so I think it's kind of neat. Uh, we've done this as an RC, is to get this high-level, um, kind of almost fast, maybe even shallow view of the of the story, and then uh, when we start in July, you'll already have this understanding of when we start to go kind of a little bit more chapter by chapter with Frank. Um, I, I always say too, like when we do these, uh, you know, everybody has their summer reading book, and what better something you know, summer reading than the Bible? So uh, Samuel and Kings, uh, we'll be doing it for those eight weeks. There's a, well, it's actually not even eight weeks. Uh, there's another, we're doing it. You had another idea to do like a one-off after we got done with this. I forget. Yeah, Tyler's going to do Yeah, that. Tyler's going to do that. So we're actually just doing one, two, three, four, five, six weeks, Samuel and Kings, reading it in six weeks. And then it'll be a little bit more interactive. Uh, there's four questions in here. Frank or Tyler will do kind of give you a map probably and a little bit of history and context of what we just read. So they'll give you their lens of it. Um, and then there'll be some time for uh, questions, dialogue, and some interaction. So it should be really fun. Um, I've done uh, some other ones. Because I've done this Kingdoms one before. There's six other books like it. Um, so hopefully it works. And each summer we can do um, a different one of these. So um, if you're interested, I'll put out something that you can email me, and then we will, um, I'll get you even more information. Yeah, I haven't answered your email, but I like yep. your email that you would send out to people. So, awesome. Um, I'll give my plug on this book. I read this uh, this last week while I was away on study break. I read through the whole thing, and it's fantastic. It reads like a novel. Yeah. yeah I, I literally could not put it down. Yeah. It was fantastic. And uh I started thinking about like the times that I kind of set thing, the discussion up on Wednesday night. 
it's like I'll be giving color commentary on 20 chapters of scripture, sort of saying, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And then anyway, I think it's going to be great. Yeah. The other thing that's different, don't run away, is we're not just going to come at 7 and end at 7.45. We're starting at 6.30. Yep. We're going to have dinner together. Yes. So we need you to RSVP so that we know how much food to have here. We're going to have dinner together, and then there will also be child care. So we ordinarily don't have child care for Wednesday nights, but for this, we are going to have child care. So. Yeah, I miss an important part that we know a lot of RCs uh, break for the summer, so we want everyone to kind of think of this as like a summer RC where I can still have some fellowship, connect with people, eat, um, and then do a Bible study together. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Hope you guys will come. Um, and we're going we're gonna to push hard on Sunday morning uh, about this as well. Uh, the other thing before we get started is um, the elders met last week while I was gone, I'm, and I'm thankful I'm still here. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, uh, they talked about, um, one of the things they talked about was the Southern Baptist Report. I don't know if anybody has heard about that or that's on anybody's radar, but um, uh, this report finally came out that there's been a lot of... Um, I guess in a way similar to the Catholic Church, there's been a lot of cover-up and a lot of problems uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, I've read some of the individual stories, and um, they're really a problem. And uh, wondering if we needed to address it. And I said, well, I'll talk about it Wednesday night. Because um, pretty much Wednesday night people are, people are generally a little bit more bought in and might actually know something about it. And so I guess all I would have to say is, um, yeah, number one, you got to remember that uh, the church is uh, the bride of Christ, but it's still led by flawed human beings, and that's a problem. And that's why you need accountability, okay? That's why you need an elder board, and that's why you need, that's why I tell you, this has nothing to do with sex necessarily, but that's why I tell you on Sunday mornings, have your Bible in front of you so that you're you're testing the spirits and you're actually following along and making sure that what's being taught to you is actually scriptural, okay? Um, But then even if you have elders and pastors uh, who are held accountable, you also have to make sure that when things get a little bit tense, they don't default towards that idea of covering up. So I think everybody in politics knows for a fact that the cover-up is always worse than the original crime. Am I right? Yet, why do we keep covering up? (laughs) It's because we don't want to face the music and we all think that we're smart enough to keep the cover-up covered up. And we're not, okay? Um, And then the last, and that's just part of human nature. And then the last thing before I actually read a chapter of scripture out of the Old Testament, Uh, that I think you might look at and go, oh, wow, yeah, human beings haven't changed in thousands of years. Um, uh, But the the last thing I I would say to you is that Redemption Church Arizona, again, has really strict guidelines and policies about the reporting of anything that's uh, torrid uh, and and the, the consequences of all of that. But again, that system is only as good as the willingness to report it and do something about it. So we recognize that. But we do have systems in place. We hope that we would use the systems in case something like that ever came up. But let me just read you uh, the first part of 2 Samuel chapter 13. 
And this might resonate because as, as I'm hearing about the Southern Baptist, which by the way breaks my heart because that's where God saved me was in a Southern Baptist church. So that breaks my heart. Um, and it's always hard because it taints the rest of the church, even the good churches. So we know that. But as that's coming out, I'm reading 2 Samuel 13, and it's, and it's striking how many similarities there are to this stuff. So here you go. Um, this is not going to be very uplifting, though. I just wanted to let you know. Okay. <laughs> now, Absalom, David's son, King David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's other son, loved her. And Amnon, now remember David has all these different wives, okay? So, so uh, Amnon loves Tamar, but Amnon and Tamar are not full brother and sister. They're from different mothers, okay? So they're just half. Still not right, but nevertheless, there's some degree of separation there, okay? Uh, so... And Amnon was so, uh, and after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved Tamar. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. Have, have any of you ever been so lovesick that you were literally sick? Just a rhetorical question. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> um, he was ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to Amnon, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see, to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me some bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I might see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. She took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone out uh, uh, from me. So everyone went out from him except Tamar. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them to, into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and laid with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hate, so that he hated her, uh, so that he hated with which he hated her, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up and go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away. 
and sending me away is greater than the, uh, uh, than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. And he called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. Do you, do you see the, all of the elements in that story? There's, there's Amnon grooming and conniving and setting it all up. And then, of course, when it happens, which, by the way, this is not unusual, after, after he finally procured what he, so, what he had longed for for so long, after he procured her, then he hated her. That happens as well. And then, of course, he tries to cover it up. Now, eventually, he's killed a couple of years later for his trouble. But he did try to cover it up, and it didn't work. Here's the thing. One of the things that uh, we have to remember about who we are as individuals is that we are finite, okay? But our desires are infinite. Have you noticed that? Our desires are infinite, but we are finite beings. God is infinite. So he's the only one who can satisfy these infinite, desi satisfy these infinite desires that we have. He's the only one. You notice how Tamar kept trying to push him to do the right thing? Because that, that, would be, that would be the way that he could have possibly been satisfied. But he refused to do it. And, and he continued to have desires after he sent Tamar away. He still had all of these other desires for power and status and things like that. We need to remember that our desires are infinite. Only an infinite God can satisfy those desires. And that ultimately is what makes us eternal is when we come to Christ. All right, there's a little mini sermon on... Uh, Amnon and Tamar and Absalom and David and Jonadab and the Southern Baptist Convention. So now let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. Man, read the Old Testament. I, I am, more and more I read the Old Testament, which I read it a lot um, because I'm really kind of a dark, wicked guy, but um, uh, <laughs> the more and more I read it, the more I, I feel like a lot of what the Old Testament is trying to get across is that we aren't basically good. We've got issues. You know? I, I was having dinner with a guy last night who attends here, and uh, he said, um, you know, I've never really read Genesis before. He said, I started reading it. He said, do you know what's in that book? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> I can't believe this stuff is in the Bible. I mean, there's incest and there's death and murder and all. He's, I, it's just crazy. I'm like, yeah, that's the human condition. You know, if you read Genesis 1 and 2 and then skip Genesis 3 and go to Genesis 4, you know you've missed something. Because Adam and Eve are in, are in the garden. They're they're naked and they were not ashamed. And the next thing you know, you got one brother killing another brother. What happened? <laughs> I, I ran to the refrigerator to get a piece of pie and, and I missed it. You know? So anyway, all right. So what we're looking at in 1 Corinthians right now are these 
this little package of three items um, that, that Paul is saying your church has a problem with these three items. The first one was this whole idea of the hair and the hats and, and all of that, which we took care of a couple weeks ago. The second one that we're going to look at tonight is the Lord's Supper and how they were messing that up. The third one, which we're going to look at next week, is going to be the exercising of spiritual gifts. That's going to be 1 Corinthians 12. We'll look at that next week. Um, and then all of that flows into 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter, which is very important in context. And so, unfortunately, we're going to skip like eight weeks before we get to chapter 13. But um, just understand that all of this is flowing together in an argument. So... We've taken care of the hats and the hair and all that stuff. Now let's read 17 through 22. Chapter 11, 17 through 22. But in the following instructions, Paul writes, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? You do not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So this section of chapter 11 starts a little bit on the negative side, wouldn't you say? Paul seems to be quite distressed by all of this. He's really going to go after them when it comes to communion because um, even though he wouldn't have necessarily called it that, this in that moment in time, communion is a sacrament. It's something that was instituted by the Lord. And so when Christians gather, we like to take meals together, but the most important meal that we take together is the Lord's Supper, which we do at this church every Sunday. And that is the meal that we take together in the context of a worship service, and that's the meal that Paul is talking about. The problem is, is that in Corinth, they're turning it into something that it's not in the church because of cultural pressure and because of their history. So Paul realizes that what is happening in Corinth is that they are trying to turn communion into the raucous feasts and political debates that they, would, they used to have, and they still had, but that the, the Christians used to have in the pagan temples. Now, they still had those raucous feasts and political debates, but the Christians weren't supposed to be taking part in them. But what they were trying to do is bring that into the church. Okay. And you're saying, really? Political debates? Yes, political debates. While they were eating in the temples in Corinth, they would, they would eat and they would drink and they would all discuss the merits of Donald Trump and Barack Obama and Reaganism, the Clinton bimbo eruptions, and the advantages and disadvantages of living in either New York or F Florida. They talked about all of that in Corinth in the first century. They were prophets. And they would do this, all of this, while getting drunk, eating gluttonously, and chasing, and for the most part, if they had money, catching prostitutes. So it was kind of, I don't know, here you go, Seinfeld reference. Um, 
when George wanted to watch TV, eat pastrami sandwiches, and make love to his girlfriend all at the same time. Anybody remember that episode? No? Okay, you're just not admitting it because you're in church and you're afraid that I'm going to call you out. I'm the pastor. I saw the episode like 15 times. <laughs> anyway, that's what's going on. Okay? They're being entertained. They're getting drunk. They're, they're chasing prostitutes. They're eating. Anyway, that's not what the Lord's Supper is supposed to look like. So they hear that there's this meal that the Christians are taking together and people start trying to bring the cultural elements in. So the church, the ecclesia, the gathering is way different and it's much more reverent than this. The Lord's Supper is about God and his sacrifice and his grace. The Lord's Supper is a celebration, but it is also a celebration for a somber and sober reason. And at the table of Jesus... One of the things that we have to remember is that everyone is equal at the table of Jesus. But these Corinthian um, feasts, not equal. Uh, it, was a, um, it was a competition of status and priority and position. So um, when we come to the table in the church, when we come to the, to the Lord's Supper, there's none of this idea that some people have food and others don't have food. That was a common Corinthian expression of superiority, that I've got this wonderful spread and the person at the next table doesn't have anything. Maybe they've got a little rice cake or something. Okay? All partake equally as, uh, in the Lord at the Lord's table at communion and all, because all are sinners before God and all who claim Jesus are righteous before God. That's all that's happening um, at communion. So just imagine on Sunday morning in our church when we get to uh, reflection time, right? And we're going to sing and we're going to come and take communion and all that. But what would happen if uh, after I'm done preaching, I say, all right, it's time for reflection time. And the minute I say it's reflection time, um, uh, half the people in the church break out picnic baskets and, and, and they start drinking beer and wine and whiskey and they start eating sushi and sandwiches and kale salads and on and on and on. Okay? Could you imagine that? All right? And, and, and while they're doing that, the, some of them go out into the, um, the, the, the lobby area there and they, and they set up tables, okay, and booths to advertise political action committees and endorse candidates and political parties. That's essentially what was happening at the church in Corinth. Okay, And what if some people have nothing? They don't have the resources to be able to bring lunch, a nice lunch to church. Or, or they forgot to, you know, they left the picnic basket sitting on the table. Oh, I thought you were going to get it. You know? And no one shares with them. So they, do, they come in, they have no food, everybody else is getting out their picnic baskets and nobody shares with them. Of course, if it's kale salad, maybe they're better off. And, and then people are getting drunk, acting like fools, okay? How many of you um, remember or have heard the praise song, Undignified? David Crowder's Undignified? <clears throat> I, I would sing it for you, but I want you to come back. So anyway, 
When, when Crowder wrote the song Undignified, that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about the, the inspiration for Crowder writing that song was, um, was when Michael, uh, David's wife, got angry at David because he danced before the Lord. And she said, you look like a fool doing that. You're not dignified doing that. And David's like, I was dancing before the Lord. I was praising the Lord. This is not what is going on here, though. This is undignified, and it's undignified for all the wrong reasons. And Paul makes this point in this paragraph. Faith in Christ is not for humiliation, but it's for humility. And there's a big difference there. Okay? Paul even gets a little sarcastic. You know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, Don't you have homes? Now, I'm going to date myself again, and there might be two people in here who will remember this movie. But if you remember the movie Caddyshack, I know it was rated R. I'm terribly sorry. I wasn't wasn't a Christian when I went and saw it, all right? But anyway, remember the movie Caddyshack, anybody? Um, Ted Knight, who was fantastic in that, that, um, he was Judge Smales. And he walks into the locker room and he sees a guy sitting. Don't you have homes? Every time I read 1 Corinthians 11, I think of Ted Knight in Caddyshack. It triggers me. All right. So anyway, Paul points out two easy to spot but profound problems. He says you're dishonoring God and you're humiliating others. You're dishonoring God and you're humiliating others. Um, I would argue that it's possible that Paul was actually around for some of this teaching because he was a contemporary with Jesus. Um, And so it's possible that he was actually there to hear this teaching. Uh, This is from Matthew 22. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one uh, one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor and as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So none of that was being exercised here in Corinth. They weren't honoring God. They weren't loving God. And they weren't loving, loving their neighbor. They weren't loving others. Okay? And interestingly, and and I think helpfully, it causes Paul to recount the Lord's Supper for them. So, here we go, 23 through 26. For For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. It's interesting there that Jesus calls himself the Lord. So that's like Yahweh. And and apparently... Well, at least in in context in the Gospels. By that time, they were used to the idea that maybe Jesus was God because it didn't really freak them out. It's the same thing as um, 
in John chapter 14, um, uh, uh, verse 1, where Jesus makes himself equal to God, that would have sucked all the air out of that room that's filled with Jews because, because there's only one God and he's saying, I'm also God. You believe in God, believe also in me. Okay, that should have sucked off, but it didn't because by that time they were used to him talking like that. Now these verses, these four verses here, we know these words, they're commonly referred to as the words of institution. It's what we say before we serve the Lord's Supper. When Paul planted the church in Corinth, he gave those people in that church these words and this sacrament to practice, but they've turned it into a riotous melee. And what Paul is doing here is reminding them that this is Jesus' meal and this is Jesus' time. He's saying, quit acting like a Corinthian. You are part of a different kingdom now. This is no longer the kingdom of Corinth. You're now in God's kingdom. And Paul magnificently, and as he always does rhetorically, he's comparing Jesus' selfless sacrifice to the Corinthians' selfish indulgence. And then Paul really gets into their faces, so to speak. Look at 27 through 32. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So obviously we're instructed to come to the Lord's table with reverence. But I want to unpack a little bit more of what Paul gets into here because it seems rather important and he's, and he's kind of on a roll here. Uh, one thing that Paul is getting to is the fact that the church, in the church, there are no social strata that are practiced, observed, or lorded over others. Or at least there shouldn't be any social strata. Now, yes, it is true. The reality is that some people have more than others in any church. And it's true that some people have jobs that command more respect than others. It's also true that... Some people simply have more social capital than others. But in the church, in worship and service, and before God, we are equals. There is no favoritism. If you want a helpful understanding of how there's no favoritism, read the book of James, which is uh, to the right of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. Favoritism is the way of the world. It's one reason, here you go, it's one reason... I don't look at giving roles in the church. I've, I've probably had that discussion with many of you before, but um, I, I don't want to know what anybody in the church gives because I know the darkness of my own heart. And even if I tell myself, don't play favorites, I'll play favorites. I just will, you know. But still, in the church, it is good to know what people have been gifted and wired for. That is a good thing. And the reason is because when a member needs help, we know where in the body to turn for help. And so it's interesting how this discussion leads right into chapter 12, which we're going to look at next week, which is all about spiritual gifts. 
and how the body works together. So we have no social strata, but we should know about each other's giftedness and the way we're wired so that we can help each other and serve each other and minister to each other. And then speaking of the body, Paul also points out that by turning the Lord's Supper into the melee that they have turned it into, they are sinning against the body and blood of Jesus. That could be a problem. Furthermore, Paul instructs us to examine ourselves before we come to the Lord's table. You know, it's the idea of taking the log out of our own eye before we actually come to the table. So we should come prayerfully. We should come in self-awareness and self-assessment. We should come in humility. We should come in repentance. But we should also come in celebration for what God has done for us. And then look again at verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but the Bible really exalts the ability to discern. The ability to discern, which takes wisdom as a master characteristic of those who love God and follow Jesus. Discernment is something that you can, you can learn by acquiring wisdom, but also some people are actually gifted for it. It's, it's considered a spiritual gift. Now, I would argue that Jackie has her spiritual gift mix. We don't, Jackie and I don't take... Um, have you ever taken one of those gift inventories? Okay, yeah. They can be helpful, but I, I also know that you, you can pretty much answer those things in a way that makes it so that you're gifted in the things that you want to be gifted in, <laughs> you know. So I've always found that um, what you're gifted in are things that you're good at and you know what you're good at. And by the way, it's okay if you like what like being, I, I talked to somebody once years ago who really loved serving others. And I said, well, you've got the gift of service. And he said, I don't think I do because I enjoy doing it. So he had this weird idea he had this weird idea that God would never gifted him, gift him in something that he would enjoy doing. No, God's not like that, okay? He's not going, you're going to hate this, but I'm going to make you good at it, okay? That's not what he's doing, okay? So anyway, discernment. Um, Jackie's gift mix, she's a servant. She has a real servant's heart. Uh, and she also has incredible discernment. I, I'm Literally, she'll, she'll tell me, that person, be careful. I'm like, what, really? <laughs> yes. And then later on, I'm like, nah, you were right. Okay. Jackie, Jackie's discernment is so good that it, it has only failed her once in her entire life. It was about 35 years ago. <laughs> 35 years ago on September 25th. Anyway, but we need discernment in this troublesome world and in a culture that's led by Satan and in a culture that's determined to take us down. And, and discernment isn't necessarily about knowing the schemes that are coming at us. It's rather about knowing Jesus and his word and his wisdom. Okay? That's the best way to discern fraud, false teaching, and the devil's plots against us is to know God really well. I... Um, I've heard that I, I was never in banking, so I don't know if this is true, but I had a guy who was a vice president for Wells Fargo 
uh, tell me that this was true. So I, he needs a Christian. I don't know if it's true, but he said that um, they train uh, tellers uh, to, to be able to spot um, what's counterfeit. Counterfeit, yeah. counterfeit bills by m- making them know the real thing so well that they can ca- spot a counterfeit like that because they know it's not real. Okay? So they don't train them. They don't train the tellers. Well, here's what a counterfeit looks like. They say, here's what a real bill looks like. This is what you need to know. And if you know that really well, you're going to know the counterfeit. Okay? So Paul is saying the same thing. And we should understand, uh, we, we don't need to go study cults. Okay? We don't need to go study Satan and his schemes. We just need to know Jesus and his word. And we're going to know that stuff right away. It's going to be obvious and apparent and easy to discern if we would just get with the Jesus program. And then verse 30 seems a little bit strange, but here's what Paul is saying. This irreverence toward God, this unloving and ugly behavior towards others, and this prioritizing of yourself and worldly things over God has already resulted, we talked about this, in Old Testament-like judgment from God. So stop it. He's saying you're already kind of experiencing some of the same things that uh, the Jews experienced in the wilderness, in Exodus. Don't you understand that you've got to stop? I thought um, uh, Tyler did a good job Sunday morning of talking about God's wrath, how there's active wrath, but there's also his passive wrath. Okay, so there is active. It's part of his character. There is this active wrath against sin, but there's also the passive wrath which you see in Romans chapter 1, where God says, okay, you don't want anything to do with me? Fine. I'm taking my hands off. Now you're going to suffer the consequences. You know, it's, it's in Deuteronomy, where, when God says to his people, I set before you, what? Anybody know? Two things, what? A blessing and a curse. Life and death. I set before you a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you keep my commandments, the curse if you walk away from my commandments, okay? So you can see there's this parallel relationship, okay? But what do we want to do? We want to walk away from the commandments but still get the blessing. That's what we want to do, all right? Verse 32 helps them to understand that if they would simply do some honest self-assessment and discipline themselves into correction, then things would be better. It's really pretty simple. It's, um, again, it's, it's this notion of, um, of uh, being a prophet or, or being able to speak prophetically into somebody's life. Um, the idea of biblical prophecy, only about 5% of this Old Testament biblical prophecy is literally about telling the future. But most people hear prophecy and they think that's what it's all about. 95% of biblical prophecy and 95% of the prophecy that should be practiced today in churches is when somebody who has discernment and knows God's word is with somebody and they're, going, and they're saying, I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm to wander over here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this out. And you say to them, look, if you do that, this is what's going to happen. You're just applying biblical knowledge to a situation. That's called wisdom. And that's prophecy. And, and if you know God's word and you're in relationship, you can do that. 
and we should be doing that. Of course, most people aren't going to listen. We already know that. Okay. So we love the idea of disobeying and still getting the blessing. So Paul's dealing with that mentality here. And then verse 32 is also, in some ways, quite encouraging. Paul explains that unlike the pagan gods that they used to worship in Corinth, the pagan gods who are uncaring and capricious, the Lord's discipline in this life is remedial for those who are in Christ. Remedial meaning it's temporary. It means that our status in Christ remains and will always remain. And then Paul wraps up this second correction in the church, the Lord's Supper, in these last two verses, and he gets ready to move on to the third, which is in chapter 12. It's these last two verses. So then, my brothers, when you come together and eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let them eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you direction when I come. Paul says in verse 33, so then, this is a way of communicating his expectation is that the Corinthians will embrace and abide by this correction. And the proper thing to do is both, is both to wait for each other, to practice patience and compassion, and if you're hungry, if you're coming to church hungry, eat something before you come. <laughs> Have breakfast or lunch or whatever it is. Have a smoothie. All right? Because the meal that we take at church in a service, in a worship service context, is not a feasting meal. Now, if you're going to RC, I hope you can go with, an, with, with, with some hunger, and I hope that you're served food. At least I know some of the RCs you get food. Uh, one last item before we move to chapter 12, and it's one of my favorites. Uh, some people actually somehow construe that Paul is signaling to the Corinthians somehow that they are supposed to suspend the practice of the Lord's Supper in Corinth. They get that somehow out of verse 34. Okay? And that is certainly not what Paul is saying. He's not saying you should stop doing the Lord's uh, Supper. He's merely putting the finishing touches on the corrections that he expects. And finally, he reminds them he plans to visit them. And by the way, towards the end of the letter in chapter 16, he reminds them again that he's going to visit them. And it's interesting because he talks a little bit more about what that visit's going to look like. And, and he says specifically, I'm not going to just pass through. I'm going to stop and spend some time with you. And I just, I have the tendency to read stuff like that through a very, like, negative, glass half empty kind of an attitude, thinking, oh, oh, he's going to come and spend some time here. He's not coming here to spend time here to, to pat us on the back. <laughs> this is going to be kind of ugly. Okay. I would rather he just pass through, maybe had one night, and then just go on. <laughs> Jerusalem is just down the road. Okay. <laughs> All right, But he's going to come. But, but he also says, I'm going to talk to you about some things when I'm there. Remember, even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, even in the first century in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament knew that face-to-face, in-person communication was better than digital communication. Paul says, I'm going to talk to you in person. John writes the same thing in one of his letters. He says, I've got stuff that I need to talk to you about. I'm not going to write to you about it. I'm going to talk to you about it. 
So even they knew that, that these, these text messages that we're sending to each other and emails, not as good as face-to-face -face communication. Okay, and by the way, I... What? Yeah, I, I know, I know. I'm, I, <laughs> I'm just an old man shouting at the clouds, right, Ira? <laughs> He sent me a video today, and anyway, it's a long story. Uh, I was like, I, did you send this to me because I'm an old man shouting at the clouds? <laughs> anyway, so um, let me, before we go and we pray, let me just read the first 13 verses of chapter 12 to kind of get you in the mood for what we're going to look at uh, next week. He moves on to the next topic. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers... I do not want you to be uninformed. Another word for that is ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by two, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but there is the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, discernment. And to another the utterance, uh, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. And to, an, uh, uh, to another, the ability to distinguish between the spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the, uh, um, and all the, members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized in one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So that'll get it. That's halfway through uh, chapter 12, but I'll come back and unpack all of that when we get started next week. Uh, let me pray. Our Father, uh, we thank you for your word and its truth, and I pray that... Um, we would be able to take these truths and by the power of the gospel and the filling of the Holy Spirit, the resurrected Christ in us, uh, you would um, give us the courage and the ability to be able to live these, this teaching out in our lives. Uh, God, we love you and we praise you for all that you've done for us and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.